then sometimes precepting is a way to regenerate. It's a way to uh, really feel your cup back up because of working with someone else who's, you know, energetic, wanting to learn and who's a sponge and is listening to everything that you say and is learning intently from you. Yes, precepting can be challenging, but um, that also could be a way for people to fill their cup back up as a nurse. What's the intersection between international health, disaster response and resilience, refugee crises, nursing education, and nursing itself? Let's talk all about it with Dr. Audrey Snyder, Associate Professor and Associate Dean for Practice and Innovation for the School of Nursing at UNC Greensboro and founder of the Global Rural Nurse Exchange Network right here on episode 367 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you and your personal and professional development and growth, your nursing career, and the healthcare system writ large. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, I'm sure you're used to those, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people out there. I love having you along for the ride and I thank you for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. If you find value in the show, please consider becoming a patron at Patreon. You know, creating, well, actually over 400 episodes now does incur a lot of costs. And I love having support from listeners. So if you want to pledge as little as $2 a month, it really goes a long way towards helping me produce and get the show out there to as many people as possible. So go to patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith to read all about it. The show notes for this episode will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 367. And I am here, as I said, with Dr. Audrey Snyder, Associate Professor and Associate Dean for Practice and Innovation. And she is at the School of Nursing at UNC Greensboro. And Audrey, it's really great to have you here. And I'm not going to try to encapsulate everything about your career in a bio because it's just overwhelming and so much. But let me just ask you this initial question. What is it like to have a nursing career that's so multifaceted and takes into consideration all these different passions and interests that seem to keep you very much alive and keep the fires of your intellect burning? I think that is based in nursing, that nursing is so multifaceted and nursing provides so many opportunities. Um, I've never said that I was bored. Uh, I think as a child that if I had said I was bored, I would have been given yet another chore to do. Mm -hmm. But being bored is something that doesn't occur in nursing for me because there's so many avenues as a nurse that you can explore. And if you're in an area and you've learned that area really well, and even though you might be doing a great job with the patient population that you're working with, something might spark your interest and that just lets you go somewhere else. And it's Mm -hmm. It's not a destination, it's a journey. So on this path, it's what we do at each place along the way and being inspired and being inspired by others, being inspired sometimes by the patients that we work with. Um, Sometimes it's being inspired by things that happen in our world around us and realizing that maybe there's another way for us to give back or to do something differently. Mm -hmm. 
that's a really good answer. Now, when you first decided to embark on a career in nursing, what was the thing on your mind that was, let's say your, your, your main motivator that put, pushed you in the direction of pursuing nursing as a career? So initially I wanted to be a paramedic. I uh, hadn't given a lot of consideration to nursing, but uh, I'm old enough that I watched Engine 56 on um, TV and saw, you know, Johnny and Roy doing their job and thought I could do that. I would really like to do that. I need to learn how to do that. But I grew up in a rural area where being able to explore that was not really an option uh, based upon gender at that time. Mm -hmm. And um, I was inspired by my grandmother who actually uh, was in our home being cared for for nine years before she died. And um, by the time I started nursing school, there were things that were just common practice that you would learn in Fundamentals 101 of nursing, how to do a bed bath, how to care for a Foley catheter, how to take care of a feeding tube, all of these things that, you know, were technical, but were a part of care. But I had learned how to do well from the home nurses who had worked with my grandmother. Mm -hmm. So that was inspiring and um, made me want to be able to help others. Isn't it interesting how so many of us nurses tend to have stories from our personal background that inspired us to become nurses? Isn't it fascinating? I think that's fascinating. I think most careers are that way. Someone either meets someone who's doing the job and, and inspires them to say, I'd like to do that. Um, or there's a situation that happens in life that whether it's for oneself or for a member of the family or a friend that I think inspires people to, you know, follow a path for a profession. Yeah. You know, one of my aunts, my, my father's oldest sister, Sylvia Carlson, she was a doctorally prepared nurse back in the, in the seventies. She had her PhD way back then, you know, it seemed kind of like a maverick, you know, and um, she was gay and, and her partner, Jan, was this this big larger than life woman with this huge laugh and she was she was also a nurse and she'd been a nurse during world war ii and this might have been a tall tale i don't know but jan would tell the story that she was one of general george Patton's personal nurses during the war and she said that when Patton had hemorrhoids she would have him soak his hemorrhoids in his helmet so I've told that story on the stage, you know, to nurses and nursing students saying that I have General Patton's derriere to thank for becoming a nurse. So, you know, we can have all sorts of stories like your grandmother, like my aunt, you know, it all depends kind of where, where we um where we come from and what crossed our path to inspire us. And I've done a podcast and I've written about this concept of the nurse polymath, you know, the person, the nurse who has lots of interests and passions, who knows a fair amount about a fair amount of things. And they tend to have fairly extensive knowledge or expertise in a variety of areas. And because of what you do, you know, you're an educator, you've worked in rural health, you've worked with refugees, disaster response, disaster resilience, research, you're a nurse practitioner. Do you do you identify as someone who's who's a polymath? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. 
Yeah, I think they all connect in some way. Mm-hmm. And that's the fascinating thing about the world is that if we look sometimes hard or even not hard, we find those connections. I think that many times the piece of rural really comes forward for me uh, because I grew up in a rural environment. Um, I grew up in a community. Um, so realizing what distance or how distance can impact access to care, um, I think is important to understand. I also realized that today that many times people growing up in a very rural area may not think that they have the ability to become a nurse or to become another healthcare professional. So I think exposure is really important. So anything that we can do to expose Um, students when they're in high school and younger uh, to health professions to give them that opportunity. Realizing they may not have as many role models um, from someone who is growing up in an urban area, what they may have. Yeah. And so education is really important to you. You are an educator. You have a PhD you're a family nurse practitioner, critical care nurse, emergency nurse, et cetera. You have, you have so many letters after your name. It's, it's an amazing list and people can see that in the show notes. You, you value education, obviously, and you value certification because you've pursued many, right? And you work with students all the time. And we'll talk about some of the really interesting things you do with nursing students. And you've also worked with and are working with nurses in Eastern Europe. So we'll talk about that too. What is it about nursing education that most lights your fire, so to speak? What do you love about it? I think the fact that, you know, when I work with a patient, I impact one and potentially several other people who are a part of their family. When you work as a nursing faculty and you're teaching students, you exponentially increase that reach. Mm -hmm. So the more students that we can train um, and help them along their education journey, then the more patients that they'll be able to impact as well. Mm -hmm. And we have a nursing shortage, so we definitely need more nurses. We need more nurse educators as well. But I think the spark of watching them learn and you can see many times just kind of those, you know, metaphorical light bulbs going on as they are working with patients and the patients are teaching them. Um, And that's something that when I talk to patients who are working with our students is to remind them of their role of educator because they really are teaching our students, not just the nurses and other healthcare providers and the faculty, but our patients are really teachers as well. Mm -hmm. Right. And you mentioned nursing shortage, which we can attest to that there's shortages all over. And actually the entire world is understaffed right now. If we want to look at the effects of the pandemic, right. Um, And we also have a faculty shortage and one of the bottlenecks it appears to be 
in terms of graduating enough students, because a lot of students do get turned away. A lot of qualified students get turned away from schools every year is a shortage of faculty. One of the things I've talked about and heard about and have um, fielded complaints about is the fact that some nurses would like to teach, but they can earn so much more money as clinicians as they can as educators. And that's something that keeps people from going into education. So what are some of the solutions that you've heard proposed or maybe seen actually you know, put into place to attract more people and keep them in nursing education where we need them to educate the next generation? So many nursing faculty job, jobs or uh, positions are nine months or 10 months as opposed to 12 months. Mm-hmm. And some people are attracted to that because they have perhaps children who are in school and feel that, okay, I'm willing to take a lower salary so I can have my summers off. And so that also means that if you have a nine-month salary, you have to annualize that to compare that to a perhaps in-hospital nursing position. Um, I think that there's a beginning uh, look at creating positions Areas that have academic medical centers attached to their nursing schools can be more creative. So, for example, they might create teacher practitioner positions where a person spends half of their time in the medical center and half of their time in the education realm. And the time that they spend as a nurse, they end up with a kind of prorated salary because that time is practicing as a nurse. So that's a creative way to look at how do we increase nurse educators? 100% of their job is not in nursing education, but having kind of that split gives them that opportunity to have a larger salary. I do think that Higher education as a whole, especially with COVID, has come under um, significant financial duress in many, many areas. So asking for an increase in salary may not be the easiest thing to do. Um, You know, uh, there are there's also inequities sometimes, I think, for example, um, your business school graduates people who go into big business and who make really good money and they donate back to their school. And so they're able to actually supplement salaries um, by having donated money being put toward salary positions. Well, in nursing, since nursing as a whole isn't, you know, a high, um, I wouldn't say wouldn't compare to many businesses, you know, mm-hmm. um, you may not have that same opportunity that there be donations that can be used um, toward incentives are increasing salaries. Um, And it all depends on the work that, you know, people are doing. You know, the goal of of a university is to educate students, but at the same time, many universities have an arm that's associated with research. Mm-hmm. And so writing grants and bringing in money to support the research efforts of the school as well. And so you, you have faculty who are trying to balance those pieces together. Um, I think that people who love to teach, make it work. Um, 
is it equitable? Not always. And I do believe our deans are looking at ways to try and increase um, compensation for faculty. You mentioned that the concept of so many students being turned away. And I was in a meeting earlier this week where someone reported from a conference that someone said, well, you know, there are these surveys and every school fills out a survey and you have to say how many students you turned away. Well, most students apply to more than one school. Mm -hmm. So if they're only using that data of number turned away per school, there is the chance that that number is inflated because if you have someone who applied to eight schools hoping to get into one, that's seven extra, you know, for just that one person. Oh, I see. Oh, that's a really good point. And I had not thought about it that way before because of how the numbers are reported. Um, they're reporting numbers, you know, of each school and numbers, you know, turned away globally. Um, I it's not just nursing faculty, though, that limit the number of students that you can accept. Um, clinical sites mm -hmm. can limit the number you can accept. Um, so if a school is in an area where they're competing with many other schools for the same clinical sites, that could be a challenge. Um, you know, academic medical centers and nursing schools, the nursing school has you know, a great setting right there, although many of them also had have contracts with community hospitals and community clinical sites also. Um, it's hard sometimes if you just can't get enough places for your students to go for clinical. So that's yes. another piece of the challenge. And then we all know that nurses, um, mental health and physical health um, has been challenged with the pandemic. And is a nurse willing to precept a student mm. or a nurse practitioner willing to precept another student? Or do they feel like I just can't give any more? And then sometimes precepting is a way to regenerate. It's a way to uh, really feel your cut back up because of working with someone else who's, you know, energetic, wanting to learn, and who's a sponge and is listening to everything that you say and is learning intently from you. Yeah. Yes, precepting can be challenging, but um, that also could be a way for people to fill their cup back up as a nurse. Yeah, to get re-inspired. Yeah, you make mm -hmm. some really, really salient points there. Thanks for, for fleshing out that conversation. I appreciate that. I just learned a lot from you too. And there's something about education that I know that you do, that you and I talked about prior, that I know really lights your fire and refills your cup. And you teach a study abroad course for interdisciplinary students. It's public health and nursing together, and it's in St. Kitts and Navis, correct? That's correct. Um, two Island Federation. Uh, in the Caribbean, originally British uh, colonies that, well, I should, can't say originally, I should say prior, because there were indigenous people living on those islands. Mm -hmm. uh, those islands were fought after um, by the um, 
French and the British predominantly. Um, the Carib Indians that were on the island were actually decimated uh, during the fights for those islands. There were a few that survived because they weren't physically on the islands when a, a large massacre occurred. Um, it is predominantly a um, Mm -hmm. Carib African population. Um, it was a spite where slaves from Africa were brought to uh, Independence Square on St. Kitts is an area where slaves were actually sold and then put on mm. other ships to be taken to other parts of the world, whether that was Europe or to the U.S. So there's a lot of history there. Um, Andrew Hamilton uh, grew up on uh, that island and uh, on Nevis, actually. Um, and these um, islands are a great place to use as a microcosm to study disasters mm. uh, because they're volcanic islands that are inactive at the moment. Um, they're also prone to most commonly hurricanes. They can have flooding. And um, tsunamis are a risk. And the majority, if you think about port cities and uh, population growth and where things are built, then the majority of your um, government buildings and businesses actually lie within wow. a tsunami so zone. Very interesting for, for the students. And I think it's really cool that you bring public health students and nursing students together. I think that kind of multidisciplinary education is really fascinating. And I often wish that medical students and nursing students could be educated together because there's so much cross-pollination that can happen. And we get so siloed from the very first <laughs> courses that we take, you know, after maybe taking some general ed courses and college, then we're all off to our different areas, never to see each other again until we're you know, colleagues in the hospital or the clinic. So I think it's really great that you bring those two together. And are there nurses or nursing students, do they, are they able to minor in public health or do they, they just, or do they just get this, this kind of um, bigger picture of public health and especially the ones who go to study abroad? So I guess in some schools you could have a minor. Mm -hmm. I think many nursing programs though are so, regimented uh, wow. for nursing students that trying to minor in another topic would be really difficult. Um, and, and we will take students from other disciplines. This year, it just happens to be that I have predominantly nursing and public health. I do have one sociology student in my group that will be participating, but students from any discipline could take the course. And that's one of the things I love about it is having that ability to bring them all together and to watch them learn from each other um, and to share their perspectives from their discipline that they are in. It's really wonderful. And speaking of multidisciplinary work and working in other countries, when we come back from the break, you've done some and are doing some really fascinating work involving Eastern Europe. And I would love to come back and really take a dive into that and also touch on your work in disaster resilience, disaster response and disaster response research. So how does that sound? Coming back from the break, we'll, we'll go right into all of that. Sounds great. 
Okay. So hang in there with us. We are here at the Nurse Keith Show. The show notes can be found at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 367. And we will be right back with the second half of the episode. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other awesome listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support The Nurse Keith Show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. And if you know someone who could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit, so you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits. What an incredible deal. And please head over to nursekeith.com and sign up for my newsletter, which comes out regularly and brings you supportive messages, updates from my blog and my podcast, resources, and all sorts of other stuff. Remember, nursekeith.com, sign up for that newsletter, and you'll also get a free download from me as my gift to you. Anyway, those are my sincere asks today. So now, Let's dig back into today's topic without further ado. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. Remember, the show notes will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 367. We're here again with new friend of the pod, Audrey Snyder. She is the Associate Professor and Associate Dean for Practice and Innovation in the School of Nursing at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. And... Audrey, before the break, we were talking about you taking students, public health and nursing students to St. Kitts and Nevis in the summers on this kind of um, multidisciplinary foray into, into international health and public health. And there's something else you do that is super, super fascinating to me. And you've been working with the country of Moldova, right? And it's a country of 2.6 million people. It's the smallest, poorest country in Eastern Europe. Can you encapsulate for us, just as an introduction, what you've been doing there? Because it's really, really fascinating. Sure. So to give you a little background, there is a collaboration between the state of North Carolina and the country of Moldova, which many times you'll find that there's sister cities uh, in different parts of the U.S. to other countries. Uh, This collaboration has been in effect for almost 10 years with a, I guess, spearheading through the State Department and uh, some work being done through Rotary International. So there is a North Carolina-Moldova Nurse Collaborative which has had some support from international rotary grants to really help the nurses in Moldova look at um, nursing scope of practice, look at nursing education, 
to really help them uh, think about nurse regulation of nursing in their country and to really find ways to help elevate uh, nursing and to focus on from an international perspective, how nursing could be if you were looking at the International Council of Nursing and uh, nursing practice around the world. So this group's been working for a while. I am a more recent member of the group when I moved into my current position three years ago. And we have been having meetings. We um, had worked last year on COVID response. Uh, Zoom really allowed us the opportunity to do many webinars. We did a series of six to help them with understanding COVID, COVID response, COVID treatment, all of those things. And then this um, winter, as we were meeting with them and planning for some future work that we've received a Rotary grant also to help them with, of course, there was the um, Russian invasion into Ukraine. Yes. And we were having meetings about um, what was happening in their country. And they reached out. The We were meeting with them on the day that uh, Russia invaded on the 24th of February. Um, it, it's morning our time when we usually meet. And of course, that means it's later afternoon their time. And um, they were at that point already had 12,000 refugees had come in through their, their borders. Um, they're just west of Ukraine and uh, they have an area, Transnistia, that is actually Russian occupied in their country. And um, there was no pre-planning, of course, it wasn't known that this would truly happen. And they didn't believe that it would when we had had previous conversations. So there was not uh, an easy mechanism for saying we can take X number of refugees and this is where we can set up a refugee center and these are the resources that we have for them. And so what you saw from that very first day in talking with the nurses there was nurses were taking refugees into their homes. And they were also trying to help plan for this continued influx. There's now been over 300,000 refugees transitioned through Moldova. Some of them have, have transitioned through and some are staying. Um, there's a large majority that do not have contacts in other countries that would uh, be a resource for them to travel to, or it may be they do not have the financial resources to travel to another place uh, to resettle, whether it's temporarily or permanently. So these refugees, as it's continued on, have been significant. And of course, they have health concerns. So we were asked, um, they haven't had that experience before of working with a large number of population of refugees and how, um, what should they anticipate? What do they need to be able to do? So they started giving us topics through the Nurses Association of the Republic of Moldova, mm -hmm. uh, which Elena Stimpovskaya is their president. And she's been a really strong leader in this collaboration along with the School of Nursing there. And she really wanted us to um, help them with some just-in-time education. So she surveyed the nurses that uh, 
are there and uh, came back with a list of topics and asked, could you help us with this? So we have put together a uh, webinar on crisis and disaster preparedness with a focus on nursing and refugees. Um, a series of webinars. Uh, some things that they have asked for has been psychological care. So we have done psychological first aid. Yeah. Uh, we hopefully by next week, we'll be doing a um, trauma-informed care presentation. Uh, we have uh, worked on uh, crisis standards of care, which is something that's pretty foreign concept to them, even though we know here during the coronavirus pandemic, it was implemented in several states in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and then emergency care. So this is something that uh, relying on some experts uh, in our area and around the U.S., uh, we've been slowly been recording these webinars and posting them so that the nurses can have access to them. And these are nurses in Moldova and in Ukraine. So the nurses from Moldova are sharing this information to their colleagues. Our very first webinar, we were a little surprised as we did COVID last year, we might have 300 logins to our webinars. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of those logins would have multiple people. Let's say uh, in one hospital, they might bring people together in a room and display the the webinar. So we hit our max of 500 um, logins and then decided we needed to make a change. So as we do the webinars, we're now recording all of them. We did record the first one, but there's simultaneous translation into Romanian and Russian, the two most common language spoken between Moldova and Ukraine. And um, when we post these videos for them, there is uh, also the slide deck translated into English, Russian, and Romanian. They can choose which one they would like to have, although our slides as we present are in Romanian. And uh, we've covered uh, nuclear and radiological disasters and treatment, um, and which was one of their very, you know, uh, I wouldn't say first, but early on request uh, that they were like, this is not something we received in our nurses training. This is something mm-hmm. that we would like to have more information about. So we feel like we have a responsibility when this request has come to work together to make this happen. And so far we've been able to do that. We're about halfway through the webinar series um, and plan to continue that. That's incredible. So, you know, the fact that you've been doing this work with the country of Moldova and you helped them create their first bachelor's in nursing program, by the way, you told me about that during our last conversation when you and I were connecting prior to recording. The fact that you've you've laid the groundwork and created this multicultural cross-pollination between the United States and the country of Moldova, and especially, you know, North Carolina and Moldova. And you've you've opened the door to these conversations and the trust engendered therein that allows you to, to have this entree to all of these nurses who are hungry for this information. And lo and behold, in the course of your work there, Russia invades Ukraine, which borders 
um, Moldova. I just looked at the map to refresh my memory. And the city of Odessa in southwest Ukraine is not that very far, far from the border. So bombs have been falling fairly close to the border of Moldova, and which must be frightening in and of itself. And also they're a former Soviet Republic. So I'm assuming that they have some fears about what their future might hold. So here you are already having engaged in long-term relationships with the nursing community there. And look at the impact you can have in real time with these just-in-time webinars during a time of war. I mean, this is like, this is actual war. And if we think about if, if I go back to what you said in the first half of the show about, you know, I asked you about teaching and what lights your fire about teaching, and you were saying how you can touch so many more people by educating nurses, and then those nurses go out and touch patients, right? So if we extrapolate that to this work you're doing, look at all the information and knowledge and skill that you're transmitting to these nurses who can then impact these refugees and other nurses. I think this is really incredible work. And how, what, what kind of, um, like when you sit there at night having a cup of tea and you're at your house and you think about these nurses on the other side of the world and the impact you've had on them, how is it for you to be involved in something so so big and far-reaching? Like, how does it feel to you personally? I guess I hadn't put it in that perspective. Mm -hmm. I have thought about the fact that we're reaching across the globe and our team has been doing some amazing work. I guess I think of it as taking it a step at a time. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a request is made. Yes, we can do it. Let's make it happen. Uh, let's pull the people together and put the pieces in place. And mm-hmm. and it is rewarding to be mm-hmm. able to feel like you're doing just a little part. Um, that's how I think of it, as we're doing a little part. And it wouldn't be possible without um, the grant that we already had from Rotary International, mm-hmm. without the Global Rural Nurse Exchange Network. 60% of the country of Moldova is rural. Um, so you're not, it, there's not a lot of large cities, but 60% of, of the, the land area is rural, um, and a p- area that, um, having worked with the global rural nurse exchange network for the last few years, um, this is something that once the, the war started, they actually said, what can we do? And we were able to procure a grant through the MCHC foundation, uh, to be able to translate all of this material, um, because that was necessary, uh, especially in a stressful situation, you really want to ensure that, Uh, culturally and linguistically that the nurses have the information at their fingertips and you want it to be in the language that they can read um, to help them out the most. So we have been supported by um, our local Guilford Rotary, the Rotary International Grant and the MCHC Foundation through the Global Rural Nurse Exchange Network Mm -hmm. to make this happen. And if it wasn't for all of those people and all of these connections, um, it wouldn't be possible. Yeah. And here you're one person in this web of people and organizations who are making this happen. And I just think, I just 
it must be incredibly rewarding, like you said, to to be involved in this. And especially with the war going on right now, the whole notion of you know emergency preparedness and disaster response and disaster resilience is so important. And I know you've been involved in a lot of research on emergency preparedness and disaster response. And you know, we're also two years, a little over two years into the pandemic now. So we've kind of been in disaster response for several years now, ongoing. And could you explain just so that we can make it clear, we all know what disaster response is and emergency preparedness. We have all have a notion of what that means. What is disaster resilience? How is it defined in the literature and out there on the ground? So disaster resilience is your ability in a way, in simplistic terms, is to survive, reflect, uh, recover after a disaster. And communities that are prepared based upon the most common types of disasters are more likely to recover their economy, um, recover health a lot faster than if there's no planning and no response. It's the same as um, if you think about airplane crashes that occur and um, there are survivors um, and the stories of where the flight attendants have been, you know, really the heroes in directing people and what to do because there's that practice and you have that time or a house fire where um, everyone gets out because they had pre-planned, you know, they had a fire plan for their home. Um, and this, this is why, you know, we teach disaster things in school because children at school, what do parents ask them when they come home? What did you learn at school today? Well, then that's the perfect opportunity. And you hope that that child that was in the class today goes home and shares with their parents about what they learned. So the children become the teachers of the family so that you're trying to expand upon that. And so some of the work that we've done in St. Kitts and Nevis has been education in schools, um, has been looking at um, disaster plans in any congregate living setting and helping them develop plans so that it's thought out ahead of time um, and that you have drills so you can test, did the plan work? And I'll give you an example. Um, each year when we're in St. Kitts and Nevis, we feel that we, we are there to learn from them. And it's the equivalent of our FEMA who works with us as we do this class, and they're very gracious. And so we always try to give back to that community in some way. And sometimes that's by organizing and planning a drill. So our students can be model victims, uh, simulated patients. Um, and one of our drills uh, early on in my work with them was to do a fire drill at the hospital because they're they don't have the same sort of intense regulations that we do here. And they don't have multi-story hospitals. It's one level. Um, so our students were the, the victims for this fire in the hospital and the fire department responded and put out the mock fire. Um, and we had a debrief, you know, afterwards, which we had evacuated, but the hospital staff had done the right things, evacuated the patients, et cetera. But what we found is that their fire plan actually evacuated people 
to the most prevailing wind area where if the fire was to spread or smoke was to spread from the fire, it would be where the patients were evacuated to. Mm. So this is why you have drills. So it is you why can we figure have drills, out. isn't it? <laughs> and so the fire department said, so that's this isn't going to be the best thing. And so we helped them rewrite that plan. Mm. And then the nurses said, well, we have fire extinguishers, but I don't know how to operate it. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike there were many of us fire fire extinguishers in our home, they did not. And um, so the next day, the fire department returns and we have a class on putting out fires and every nurse was able to operate the fire extinguisher to put out a fire in the courtyard so that we could um, ensure that that identified gap in knowledge was mm-hmm. met. That's fantastic. And, you know, when we're in bachelor's and nursing programs, I know at mine at University of Massachusetts Amherst, we did a lot of work around community health. And some of us did disaster planning. Some of us did response in terms of um, drugs on the streets. You know, we did all sorts of things. And they all came down, basically, everything came down to education, whether we were in the schools. I was in a drop-in center for people with substance use disorders. Um, You know, no matter what it was, it all came down to education. And we were teaching people in the drop-in center how to respond if one of their friends overdosed, you know, because if you don't know, no one's taught you what to do. You don't know what to do. You don't know to lie them on their side. So in case they vomit, they don't choke or, you know, they're very simple things. And so you take that out to the community level and here you are, you know, hopefully there never will be a fire in that hospital, but now those nurses are educated and that information can be spread to others as well. And I know you've worked in El Salvador and Haiti after the earthquakes. You've done refugee response at the U.S.-Mexico border. We talked about um, St. Kitts Nevis, your work there. And we've talked about your work in Moldova. I mean, you've, you've really done a lot. And when it comes down to it, Audrey, in terms of being a nurse, what's your message to listeners, especially nurses who are like, I really want to do more, or I really, I want to find different ways to contribute. Like, I love my job, but I want to do something else. You know, what would you advise them if they, they feel the itch to do something? Where do they turn? You know, what, what rocks can they look under in terms of opportunities to, to do something else and get involved? So I think it depends on whether they um, can do work just locally. Mm-hmm. If they can only work locally, then one of the things that's always, I think, helped me is I've volunteered in free clinics. So, mm-hmm. and it may only be two evening shifts a month, but still it's doing something different. It's with a different population. And it's usually a population whose needs have not been met by other means yes. or they would not be at clinic. Um, Working with migrant workers uh, for many years, I worked with students doing health assessments with migrant workers and then referring people as we found things that were identified. Um, Finding something that will fill your cup back up, Mm -hmm. finding some way to do something different. And usually for me, it's something I'm not being paid for. It's not the job that 
gives me that, you know, I'm making a paycheck from. So could you um, find an organization, you know, if you can take a week of vacation time and go somewhere else, can you do that? There's many groups like Global Response Medical, for example. Um, they work at the border. Uh, they also now are doing Ukraine response and taking groups in to help evacuate really critical people and helping to manage some clinics within the country. So finding a group, you know, and maybe you don't want to go to Ukraine uh, war zone, which they're not working in the areas that have so far been being bombed. They're more distant, but um, thinking about you know, what would fill up your cup? Is there a church group who's doing a mission where they're going to another country? Mm -hmm. um, there's many reputable groups that help support healthcare, um, education in other countries. And could you play a role in that as a nurse? Could you find your niche? Um, many times there's groups that are going in and helping to set up clinics or set up a hospital or just sort medical supplies. There's groups like um, Project Cure where, you know, they uh, have warehouses in places throughout the U.S. and a, a group of friends can come together and they love nurses to volunteer because nurses know what all the medical supplies are. So they get loads of donations and they sort them out and then they get distributed out to charities and to missions. And so maybe you have a sort and wine evening where our day where that you and some of your friends all just go and sort medical supplies and you're having fun doing it together and you, you know, have some wine and cheese and, and mm -hmm. do something like that. But finding a way that, um, you're giving back. And I think that's what's always helped me is being able to give back and to impart some of the knowledge that I have to be able to help others and not in the role where I'm being paid for it. Thank you. That's really helpful. And I hope, you know, that might be just the words of inspiration that someone needs to hear right now. And is before we go, speaking of inspiration, I have four quick questions I like to ask all my guests. I've been doing this for the last few months and it's always fun. And can I run these by you? Are you game? Sure. Okay. We'll try. So the first question is, how do you define success? Whether personal or professional doesn't really matter. To me, success is showing up and giving my all and hoping for good outcomes from that. Um, we know that depending upon the type of patients that we're working with, we don't always, regardless of how great of an effort we put in, that effort may not relate or translate to necessarily the best outcome for that patient. Mm -hmm. But as long as I've been present and I've given care, to me, that's success. That's lovely. Thank you. Now, the next question is, how would you describe one person who's inspired you in the course of your life? They could be living or dead. So I guess I'd have to say my grandmother, who I mentioned earlier. Um, she was actually a lay midwife. Um, she had no formal training to be a midwife, but mm -hmm. she was a lay midwife. And um, even at a young age, she taught me a lot about uh, common uses of plants and herbs and things that um, 
she, you know, knew from her background and her grandmother was Cherokee Indian. And so many of those things translate, you know, even to today that I learned from her back then. So she was always an inspiration for me before she became sick. And then once she became sick, she became my teacher as a patient. So hmm. say she was a good inspiration. Well, your grandmother has featured in both halves of the episode. That's really nice. What was her first name? Lena. Lena. Thank you. And next question is, is there a book or a movie that's had a major impact on either the way you think or perhaps the way you live your life? So I would say that there's one movie that I really enjoy watching. Mm-hmm. And um, that movie is Top Gun. Mm-hmm. And part of it is because I love to fly and I love air scenes. And I know a lot of that was done, you know, with models. Uh, but the idea that um, you can have dreams and things can happen that may divert you along the way. But if you keep at it, you can still have success, that you can still make your dreams come true. So that's a, that's a movie that I, that I, I like to watch when I want to feel good and maybe I'm not feeling as, as great. That's a movie that I can watch and I feel good. (laughs) And that circles back to the success question. Nicely played, Audrey. (laughs) And now that the final question is what's one piece of advice you'd give to your 18 year old self at this point in time, whether she would listen or not. (laughs) 18-year-old self yeah. is all of those ideas that pop into your head, write them all down. And at some point, you might be able to do all of them. Mm. Just, you know, keep, keep, keep those ideas kind of documented, you might say, to, to work on or to plan for uh, and be able to say later, yeah, I did that. That's a really good one. I bet she'd listen. (laughs) Well, Dr. Audrey Steiner, thank you so much. You are the Associate Professor and Associate Dean for Practice and Innovation at the School of Nursing at UNC Greensboro. You're a nurse practitioner at Cone Health. You're a co-founder of the Global Rural Nurse Exchange Network. I mean, you've been accepted as a member of the United States National Disaster Management Assistance Team. You are an amazing human being. And I just, I really want to thank you for being on the show and gracing us with with all of this inspiration about everything you've done in your life. And um, thank you so much for all the good work you do in the world. Thank you for having me and giving me this opportunity to share a little bit about me and the work that we do. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this super inspiring episode of the Nurse Keith Show. You can learn all about Dr. Snyder and the work she does at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 367. I'm sure you feel uplifted and empowered and inspired from this episode. So take some inspired action in the interest of your personal and professional development. And if you need personalized holistic career coaching, look no further than nursekeith.com. Get in touch with me at keith at nursekeith.com. And if you mention Dr. Audrey Snyder or the show, you can get 10% off your first coaching package. And if you want to become a patron of the podcast, 
head over to patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith. And I thank you for considering doing so. We are a proud member of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. We are adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappy Spiesen as our stalwart social media and newsletter ringmaster. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote, one of my favorites by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. And I think Dr. Audrey Snyder does that many times over. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico and new friend of the pod and my new friend, Dr. Audrey Snyder saying arrivederci from Brown Summit, North Carolina. Thank you so much, Dr. Snyder. Thank you to everyone for listening and we will catch you on the proverbial flip side.